in my lifetime, I've seen it all, I think, where you see church leaders that have failed in moral morality, leaders that fail in, in finances. A lot of different things happen that get up in the spotlights, that often put up on the TV and the press, and it gives church and Christianity a bad name, and it makes it a big struggle for all of us because every time you share Jesus, the question is, is well, are you like that? And it's a difficult conversation to have sometimes because the reality is sin happens, and there's character qualities that are diminished, and then sadly enough, that happens in, in anyone's life. But there's a, a passage or two of Scripture today I want to share with you from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 that's specific to the character qualities that you see in, in biblical leadership. Now, we've been talking about leadership for the last couple of weeks and have taken the time in this text to understand who are, the, who are we talking about here when we're talking about the bishop, the, the elder, pastor, which we've seen as that term is actually the same person or persons, um, plurality even of that. But it's the, the idea that the bishop is an overseer. He's an elder by terms of maybe age and rule and counsel, but also a pastor in terms of feeding the sheep. It's the same person embodied, different roles. And the same, we saw the word deacon as a minister, a servant. We've seen them in male and female forms throughout Scripture. So we can understand what's the, the issue's not a title. It was the aspect of the servant. And the aspect of what do they do, uh, as we described in one, one week, we talked about a deacon deeks. The word's not really a word, but the verb of, the, of a deacon is someone who serves. If they are a minister, they minister. If they're a servant, they serve. And those things go hand in hand. But Paul put some parameters around this as he was writing to Timothy. He gave Timothy some instruction because part of Timothy's role in the church at Ephesus was to establish elders and to multiply that ministry, and as they would take and plant churches, more churches in that area, what do leaders look like? What should this be? He said the same thing to Titus. Matter of fact, he gave the instruction in the book of Titus. We see this, that he gave the, the role of, as an elder, you need to establish elders and multiply these things, but this is what they look like. So that you get away from popularity contest, that's never the issue. You don't just look at someone's secular work to determine are they capable of standing in front of people and being an orator, because that's really a very small part of the role. Instead, you look at the character. The whole thing drives down on character. And in fact, Timothy was one of those guys that we see it in the book, the letter that Paul wrote to him. We see Timothy's character from the time Paul really connected with him on one of his mission journeys. He picked him up as a, as a young disciple and trained that dude to be the minister that he, that he was capable of being. And he observed Paul's life and watched how Paul did things, but he was a learner and then was able to become a teacher. In the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul affirmed this to him or to that church as they were going to receive Timothy says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with the Father, he served with me in the gospel. Timothy's character was proven out by the time he served with Paul and, to, and he get to, got to see him in a lot of different, in very difficult circumstances, so that he could entrust him to go into a very, very difficult place, Ephesus, 
where the Princess Diana and the temple gods and all that business takes place, and he's going to send this young pastor into that place to minister there and multiply that ministry in that spot. But Timothy had to be a proven character. And so he gives them then a list, and I, I sometimes struggle through teaching through lists of things in the Bible and hope it won't be boring just to reel off words and, and phrases. But each one of these, phrase, or these words today are so significant because we're talking about the character not just of an elite group, not just for pastors and deacons. No, that's not the point. It's for the church. These are the character qualities of Christ followers. And so as you are looking among yourselves for those that would fill those roles, this is what they look like. So this isn't one of those, whew, I never desire to be a pastor, so I'm excused off of this and I have no plan to be a deacon in my life either. So, man, I dodged that bullet today. No, this is, as a Christ follower, this is for everyone, male or female, young or old. This is what we aspire in our lives, that we build these character qualities into our life. And how do you build stuff? It's through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. When we walk in the Spirit and we yield our lives to the Spirit of God who lives in you as a Christ follower, He is constantly building these character components in you. And there, we also have an enemy that is always opposing those things. This, the world, our own flesh, the devil is always opposing these character components and pushing against. And so our danger is adopt the, the way of the world system into our manner of character. And what happens when we do that is we will then have what we call respectable sins. And respectable sins are those ones that, well, they're not the big ones that would really knock you out. No, they're just, they become acceptable and kind of in the norms of life. And we all recognize, you know, we adopt those into our lives and what they ought not to be. These are the things that are being spoken of specifically even in this text. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm not going to have all the verses today on the screen because we're going to walk through one text of Scripture, so it won't be real difficult uh, to see what we're doing here. But 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, when you came in, hopefully you got one of these little green sheets. Did you get a green sheet that has a bunch of characteristics? Where's mine? I, everybody, I had one. That's kind of sad. All right. So hopefully you got one of these. If you didn't, raise your hand because we've got some guys that will run them to you. If you didn't get a green sheet, all right. Colton, start running. We're going to get you the green sheet because I wanted to try to give you these in a real snapshot photo of what do these character components look like and what do they mean. I don't have the time today to be able to go through and attach Bible verses to every one of these and backstory all of it. We can't do that. But I want to draw some attention to certain ones that are very challenging to us in our culture. Okay? The very first characteristic here, if you watch 1 Timothy, 3, um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, is this. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. This is like the bigger overarching umbrella of, of all of the other things that come underneath it. And it's the word blameless. What does that actually mean? It doesn't mean sinlessness because that's not reality. No, it's but being not being able to be justly accused of sin. Now, people may accuse you, but I always think of it this way. You need to live a Teflon lifestyle where nothing sticks. They may be able to accuse a lot of things, but it's not going to stick to you because there's no way that could be a reality. It's impossible. That is blamelessness. Paul recognizes the fact that this isn't an issue of sinlessness because he himself described his own struggle with sin in Romans 7, 
where he said, you know, the things that I want to do, I don't. The things that I shouldn't do, that's what I do. And I struggle as long as I'm in this fleshly body. I struggle with sin and it's like this constant conflict happening in me. But what was the point? His point was, I keep my sin account current. My sin account with the Lord is always kept current and my sin account with people is current because we will violate each other in life. That's inevitable. And so a blameless one is one that will keep his accounts current. Very important. But to follow after as we kind of work underneath that particular subject, let's continue, that he must be the husband of one wife. Boy, there's enough probably conflict just in that one verse, right, or that phrase that gets everybody excited. The literal translation of this in the, from the Greek to the English is a, a one-woman man. That's the literal words. Well, what does that mean? Well, many might take off and run with this to say someone who's never divorced. Well, Paul is very acquainted with the word divorced, but that's not what he chose to say. Well, that's, then it must be describing polygamy and not having polygamy. Well, that may be, though maybe culturally that wasn't even the hot item. Though you had a lot of things going on in the pagan culture in the time, where a person would be married, but as part of their pagan worship would go into a pagan temple and extramarital affairs or sexual activity in the temple was a very normal part of pagan worship. But a, a blameless one, a husband of one wife, is a, a one-woman man, or we might even say a one-woman, a, a one-man kind of woman. It's the manner of conduct in which you... Uh, handle your life because if, if you think about it this way if someone has never been divorced and we're going to set that aside because remember Paul talked about divorce just be careful here because this is one that people can get really uptight over but remember in first Corinthians chapter 7 Paul described this that if you have a believer and an unbeliever in the same space and they can dwell together peacefully praise God but he said if the unbelieving departs and they don't want to be a part of this Christianity thing it's okay. They go. But if you can live together in holy matrimony, then praise the Lord. That's the plan. But he gave space for that. But he didn't in 1 Corinthians 7 say, by the way, if the unbelieving departs, you are officially now disqualified from leadership and ministry. He didn't say that, though he could have. So I like to say, be careful here, jumping on bandwagons when it comes to the what does he mean by what he says, because you could easily have. The struggle here of going to this verse and being very literal to say, well, a pastor then must be married. If he has to be the husband of one wife, he has to be a married man. Is that really the intent of Paul's writing? Or is he dealing with his character? You can have a man who's never been divorced, who is married to someone that is also kind of a ladies' man. He's kind of a flirtatious type, and the ladies are never comfortable to be around that dude. Would we say then that he would be blameless? No, that's not blameless. Well, Paul's describing the character of the man. It's a man devoted to his wife. And, in the, and I would say this, that a wife devoted to the man. It's very distinct. We're dealing with character. The husband of one wife, this man needs to be a temperate man. Self-controlled is the term, or vigilant. It's the combination of those two. Matter of fact, the word temperate or self-controlled goes hand-in-hand with sober-minded, which is the next one. 
Why is this the case? Because someone who is temperate is watching out for their own vulnerabilities. They see and they're very self-aware of where they're vulnerable to sin and struggle, but they also are very observant of the needs of others and are willing to jump in and help meet those needs. But they're also sober-minded. That's why these two go hand in hand, because they're not emotionally controlled in their decision processes. This is why 1 Peter 5, 8, I'll just quote the verse to you. It says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks around seeking whom he may devour. You have an enemy that is always in pursuit, wanting to wreck your life. And he plants, he works subtly, he works the long game in your life, he sets things in order, he works the system of the world, he's got this thing figured in order to lead you down a path to ultimately try to get you to fail. In some way big, some way small, doesn't matter, because he'll use it to exploit and use it to try to wreck your testimony, to reduce your platform so that when you try to speak of Christ, it seems you have no platform. But that's not true. And so now, watch, if I'm going to be sober and vigilant, recognizing I have this adversary, I'm not going to be, I can't be a guy making uh, decisions and emotions all the time. But that doesn't mean you're absent of emotion either. You were created with emotions. They're just not designed to rule your decision processes. This good behavior To be of good behavior deals honestly. It's not corrupt in communication and it's submissive to other leaders, meaning this, that in in your honest, you're honest in all of your dealings, but you're also submissive to the structures that God's placed in your life, whether it's your employment structures, the political ones, the the rules of the and of the of the land, whatever the circumstances may be, there's a submission to that and an honor that's given in those particular roles. We know this, that evil communication corrupts good manners. This good manners are good behaviors, even in the conduct of, our, of the way we speak, the way we talk. It reveals much. You remember this when Peter wanted to discredit the fact that he wasn't one of the Christ followers. Right before, I mean, this is where Jesus is about to be crucified. And this young lady sees him and says, hey, you're one of those guys that was with the Jesus guy. What was the easiest way to disassociate himself with Jesus? The words of his mouth. First, it was just not so, no, 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 no. You got me confused with somebody else. But as the issue pressed and they were getting a little bit too close, it was was getting a little hot. The easiest way to discredit himself away from Jesus was he just began to use profanity and curse to, to make it clear. I'm not part of him. That's not me. Evil communications corrupt good manners, so it's a character of good behavior. It's the character of being given to hospitality, sensitive to the needs of others, and willing to share. It's, it's, you think about welcoming in a church context, welcoming into the family. So we're observing the needs of our family, that somebody needs, needs food and needs a meal, needs some help, needs this, needs that. Well, that hospitality takes care of that. It's It's being mindful of what it looks like when we all come in here to worship every week. Nothing magically happens to get us all set up for this to happen. There's people that serve and and are given to hospitality to make sure that the environment is set so we can come here, 
fellowship together, worship together, open the word together, and do life together. But it takes everyone to accomplish that. People that are given to hospitality, man, they're all about that because they want the environment set so that people could come and worship Jesus. It's also being able to teach. Capable of obviously organizing biblical truth and presenting it in an understanding way. That's what it means to be able to teach. Not given to wine. Now this is another, whoo, here's a hot subject. What does it say? Not given to, addicted to is the term. Not controlled by substances or anything other than the Lord and the Holy Spirit. That's the, what this would mean. So if there's something else that you medicate with, and I'm not talking about med prescription medications, don't get all weird on me here, okay? But we find ways to medicate our lives in order to tolerate the courses of the day, the pressures of life, to calm down, whatever it may be. Oftentimes people will grab hold of wine and make it an issue in the Bible that it's not. You know, wine throughout Scripture was seen as a blessing, it was a gift, actually, God gave to Israel. And when Israel was living in disobedience, the wine shut off. Well, that wasn't like wine. That was like just grape juice. Be careful, because remember, Jesus is the one that says, when you pour that wine into a wine skin, new wine into an old skin will blow that thing to smithereens. He didn't exactly say it that way, but that was the, the meaning. But why would that happen? Because you pour wine juice into a skin like a leather skin as it begins to ferment it stretches the skin then it glazes over with this hardened thing and it becomes like a hardened bottle now if you pour new wine back into that like grape juice into that when it begins to ferment it's already been stretched beyond measure it breaks it so jesus himself is describing the fermentation process so Dwayne, are you endorsing that everyone drink wine no i wouldn't do that I'm just giving you the warning here. What does the scripture say? Not given to wine. There's a lot of struggle with this in our culture. There's struggle with this in Christianity because you end up in a church environment with those who socially drink and those who don't. And it's a challenge because we don't see things through the same lens sometimes in life. And can we still do life together? I've had struggles with this in ministry many years. I, I've, as you, many of you know, I have... I have been in many places where wine or alcohol has been a huge problem. Many of you in this room have experienced deep hurts and sorrows connected to alcohol. And so the very subject just kind of creates tension in your life. I've had moments in ministry, especially dealing with young adults, where you have somebody that will come new into a group and say, man, I just, I'm, I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life. I'm just needing a start over spot. I'm needing a safe group that I can be with that will kind of point me in the right direction. And I can tell you as a pastor, there's, there's times I'll have to say, you know what, let me kind of guide you to this group over here because they're not going to go down the pathways of the things you're describing because it's somebody that to go hang out with the social drinkers would send them right back down the, the tank again. That's not a possibility. And so what I learn is there's people that have the maturity to recognize who they're with, where they're at, and know what time it is. It's always the big question in leadership. What time is it? And when you don't know what time it is, it's kind of the disqualifier in and of itself. It 
Because all of a sudden they realize, I would venture to guess in my own life, when I sit down with five, six different people at the table at the same time, somebody at that table has had a really difficult background with alcohol, a lot of pain there. So are you teaching then that total abstinence is the thing? I'm going to follow what the word of God says to not be given to wine. It's not my deal. I don't, I don't it's not my, it's not what I do. I have, I've struggled to ever be in an environment where that would, had a, would have been profitable for others to be. Is it a rule? We don't make rules that the Bible doesn't make. The scripture says not given to wine. But Paul said this very distinctly. He said, you know what? Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God control you. Let it rule your life. If something besides the Spirit of God is in control of you, you're out of bounds. But he also taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14. And he says, you know what? If substances that I'm used to having and it's all fine for me, he said, I don't care. But if it makes my brother to stumble, I'd rather not eat it or drink it or have anything to do with it ever again. Because my goal is my brother. I want to see people come to know the Lord and I see people grow in the Lord. I'm not going to violate someone's conscience that way. That's what maturity and character looks like because it's not just thinking about my liberty and my right and what can I do, but what about the people around me? And taking into that, that into account, because it's also being given to hospitality, will recognize that and you'll be thinking of others. It's also a characteristic here of not being violent, which is uncontrolled anger to the point of verbal or physical violence. Not much commentary required, but you can see the explosiveness of personality here that leads to verbal or physical violence. Not greedy for money. Receiving money through improper means, having an attitude of finding ways to get more, pay less. And that doesn't mean you can't go shop for good deals or barter and negotiate good grief. We understand that's part of the culture we live in. This is where you take that a step further. This is where it's you nickel and dime people and demoralize them in the process. Where you're just really difficult to deal with. And when it's all over, when the transaction's finished, people are like, man, I hope I never have to deal with that guy again. It's using manipulation. It's, it's working deals sometimes and just making it very unpleasant to be dealt with. It's also times that people could be a hoarder holding on to the things where God has designed you as a Christ follower to be a channel of blessing. So where God has now prospered you, but then you won't forward that prosper to anyone else. And so we hoard it and we just keep holding on. And now we have 27 of everything and you really needed one, but somehow we ended up with a house full and we don't know what to do with them other than work around them. Not greedy for money. To be gentle means also to be patient, handling adversity with patience without complaint. You see this fortified in Timothy's character as he ministered with Paul in some really tough spots. To be patient, handling adversity, not complaining. Man, I'm a servant of the Lord, and if this is the assignment God has for me today, praise God. If that will be your mindset, I heard a guy say that one day, and it really it, it helped me in my own walk. He made the statement. He said, I wake up every morning, and I, I ask the Lord, Lord, what's my assignment for today? And the assignment for today may be a very difficult assignment. 
It may be a very difficult conversation. It may be to bear with someone that's very difficult, that's just very hard to deal with. But the manner in which we then reciprocate conversations or attitude may be the very thing that leads them to come to know the Lord or helps them to see who Christ really is. So the question is, is, Lord, what's my assignment for today? But never complain about my assignment. Do not be quarrelsome. Not seeking confrontation or looking for a fight. Do not be covetous and having a desire for more than you have and being dissatisfied with the Lord's provision. Matter of fact, the word covetousness is connected to idolatry in Colossians 3. Why is that so? Because when I'm covetous for something, I'm desiring what someone else has. I want their position, their power, their esteem, their money, whatever it is, I want that. Don't want them to have it either. But it has become the idol of my heart because I love that more than I love the Lord because now whatever the Lord has supplied, it's not enough. And covetousness will drive. It's what often will lead people. And matter of fact, he teaches this in 1 Timothy 6 that covetousness um, is the opposite of contentment and it leads to destruction because you can just never have enough. There's always one more thing. This man needs to be able to rule his own house well, living by example and training children in the principles of Scripture and applying biblical discipline. A phrase that was helped me years ago when Amy and I were setting out to learn to train our children was a phrase in Scripture that was uh, learning to hearken to my voice. I did a word study on our phrase study on that through Scripture. And what was the Lord always doing with the nation and with the people? Hearken to my voice. Just learn to listen to the voice of God. Well, as a parent, this changed things for Amy and I significantly to where instead of behavioral modification and trying to find physical ways to get people to obey in my home, now it became the focal point of learning to hearken to the voice. Because if they learn to hearken to mine in that order, they'll learn to hearken to the Lord's as well. And so it was, it was training to obey immediately, exactly, and with a good attitude. To not be a novice learned and practiced and tested biblical leadership. That was Timothy. When he first came on site with Paul, he was a novice. He wasn't a novice Christian. He was just novice in leadership. So what Paul was doing with him was just working him and grooming him constantly and putting him in spots to grow and then come back to Paul again. And then he would go set him on another spot and he would go do some things and he'd come back to Paul again. And eventually now it's time for Timothy, you got to go here, son. And he's now pastoring this church. And Paul's in prison. He can't connect to him in the same way other than through letters. But there was a proven aspect to his character. He was not a novice. To be of good testimony, unsaved people, speaking well of you in your dealings, your business dealings as an employer, as an employee, you pay your bills on time, your conduct is pure. Is pure. It's also someone not self-willed which we would think of as even stubborn, not having to have everything your own way. Not being quick-tempered. It's the short fuse. Someone who's seldom angry, they don't lose control. It doesn't mean they never get angry. We've seen Jesus get angry in Scripture. We've seen many men in the Word of God with righteous anger because God was being violated. 
but it wasn't this consistent habit of explosion of anger and then lose control. To be a lover of what is good, which doesn't, it means you don't rejoice in sinful things, but you love reproducing righteousness. You're investing in righteous things. You're investing in people. You're investing in the word of God. Those are the things because you love what's good. And when you don't love what's good, you'll find yourself spending your time and energy and investment in things that are very worldly. They're, you say, well, is it all sinful? Maybe not. It just isn't good. It has no eternal significance or value. It's just more stuff and more time and more energy spent in those things. Someone that's a lover of good, invest in righteous things. It's an individual who's just. Understanding justice and embracing mercy. Someone that's just as fair in their dealings, but always wrapped with mercy. They're holy and pursuing godliness and abstaining from the stains of this world. They're holding fast the faithful word. What does this mean? To love, learn, and live Jesus, as we talk about here often. To hold the word of God over anything. Traditions of men, anything. Is all of life and all of decisions and everything gets run through the filter of the scriptures as opposed to all other things. That's holding on or holding fast the faithful word. Now, in Scripture, in 1 Timothy 3, you get to verse 8, and there's a, a shift because he says, likewise, deacons. Deacons, we've learned that term, means ministers, servants. They were obviously seen as those that were probably in a leadership function as a minister servant. But if you're going to have those, then what does that look like? Well, the word is reverent. They need to be reverent, or another word is grave. We hear that word, it's like, ooh, that sounds bad. But if you think about the word gravity going with grave, they understand the gravity of the matter. When you're reverent, you understand the gravity of the matter. There's a reverence for the things of God. There's a reverence for the place of worship, the people of worship. There's a reverence for the Word of God, and when the Word is open, there's things that happen in silence, and we don't over-talk each other and ignore each other. There's a reverence for the ministry of God and understanding how to multiply our lives with others, but it's taking serious the things of the Lord and understanding the gravity of the matter. It's not double-tongued, meaning a repeater or a deceiver. And you think about this word, a repeater is someone who loves to tell or repeat the stories. Generally, this is going to be found in the, well, I heard, and well, now I was told, and they repeat those things, whatever that is, though they were not part of the original conversation or the event, but now they're repeating all the stuff from their interpretation or someone else's, but they're only catching a piece of it. That's the repeater. It's a gossip. But there's also the deceiver side of this piece. And on a someone double tongue, we think of someone with a forked tongue. <laughs> because they say one thing in one story in one environment for this group and a different story over here. And those stories are not the same. What's the point of that? It's deception of how you want to be perceived. 
Again, the servant leader, not given to much wine. We've mentioned that. Not greedy. The husband of one wife, ruling their house well. All these things are described and consistent. But if you just notice the ones that were uniquely called out to servant leaders, the seriousness and communication, what happens in the mouth, the tongue, it's always serious. You ever wonder why that is? Because the same thing, watch what's going to happen here. When you focus on specific to women, likewise, uh, their wives, and I mentioned this before a couple of weeks ago, the translation specific from the Greek on this matter would be likewise wives or likewise women. In your English book, Bible, it probably italicizes the word there because they're giving a connection to it belonging to the deacon, assuming it to be man. From the position of Acts chapter 6, where there were seven men that were chosen for the role of serving the tables. But as we've already talked about, we have seen men and women serving as the role of servants and ministers. But I want you to pay attention careful here. That they're reverent, meaning the same. Taking all things into gravity, but not slanders. Once again, it's dealing with the conversations. Slanders has, takes on a different tone because it's a malicious gossip where you're talking about others with the intent to demise. Often this is seen where you take a side because a, a something's happened and you take a side. Then often we repeat that and we take up this whole process when quite frankly we don't really know because we weren't a part of all the equation. And then it turns into, well, I bet this is what's happening, or I can imagine this is what's happening. And all of a sudden, this huge case gets built that's not real. Now, why does this matter? It's interesting that in leadership roles, so much of what has been talked about is about what comes out of our mouth. And I was analyzing this this week so much that, you know, so much in the role that I have as well as many of you do in your companies or your life is you often have information that someone else doesn't have. If you give counsel to people, you have information that's private. You're a, a biblical steward, which means people may come to you and ask you questions about dealings with their husband or wife or their children or relatives or problems at work or whatever. So now you have intel on something that's troublesome. Now the question is, what are you going to do with that? And if you become then a repeater of any of that, well, you've disqualified yourself in a lot of ways from a role, in a leader role, because that's dangerous. It's destructive. But I will tell you, I think one of the great challenges that I ever faced in ministry is whenever I have, when I, when I know things, but you can't talk about them, and then things get said or things get accused in one way or another of one party to party A, a party B. Many of you understand what I'm describing. But to hold your integrity, you can say nothing. You have to say nothing. But oftentimes, you get rolled in the process. I'm not saying there's a problem here. That's not it. Don't, don't ever misconstrue. Well, I'll bet you he's... No, now you're slandering. Don't do that, Okay. There's no problem here. I'm just telling you this is a huge challenge. And I have watched people 
lose their ministry because they talk too much. They, hold, they have information that was never intended to be shared by anybody. And they shared it and it was destructive. Super destructive. And so there's this, so much has been called out here about the words of our mouth. And I watch what's happening today in our culture. And there's so many platforms for us to vent all of our mind. Be careful. Because once it goes, you can't get it back. And all of a sudden, and it's destructive for the gospel's sake, and it's destructive for our family's sake, and a lot of things go into a big problem for that. When it's specific to the women, to be sober-minded as well, not drunk or controlled on emotions, and faithful in all things, trustworthy in conversations, in relationships, in service and ministry. It's faithful in all things. Now to summarize, this is difficult. There's like 22 different character qualities we just try to roll through very, very fast. And each one of them require probably a whole day's worth of study to really understand the gravity of what are they meaning. But the point Paul was making to Timothy and to Titus was this. When you're looking at leaders, it's looking at the character of the individual, the totality of the individual. This is not for the elite. But we should all this morning be able to stay, stand back and look at each of these things and say, you know what, there's an area I need to grow in. That's an area that I'm, I'm vulnerable there. These are things that God's teaching me right now. Maybe you're in a spot like Timothy where he's, he was hungry for the word, hungry to serve God. He needed a teacher. When he came alongside with Paul, after learning alongside with him, you know, in the second letter that Paul wrote Timothy, he said this in chapter 3, verse 10. He said, but you, Timothy, you've carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, my purpose and faith and long-suffering and love and perseverance and persecutions and afflictions. You have been with me through all of that. You're proven. And he was reminding him, you are a proven man of God. Your character is secure. Does it mean Timothy was sinless and perfect? Nope, not a bit. No more than Paul was. But there was a character about him that would endure the hardness. Now the question we have to ask here, and as I finished, how does this get forged in our lives? Where's the starting point? Well, certainly I can look back in my own life and realize where things were built in me and God's put people in my life to invest their maturity in me to give me insight. I met with an older man this week, an older pastor friend of mine, and he always shares with me a golden nugget of truth that's very helpful. And I appreciate him very much. It just helps me learn, helps me grow, holds my feet on the ground on some things. But where does this stuff begin? It's, well, it's discipleship relationships, but I want to take you all the way back to the real beginning of it. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father. Just listen close. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It goes on then to explain what is that hope that we have looking forward to in the future. And based on the fact that Jesus raised from the grave and we can anticipate our eternal life with him that has already began the day I trusted him, but I will be with him forever and ever. That's where my investments need to be placed. He says, therefore, in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be also holy in your conduct, because it's written, be holy for I am holy. Then he goes on to say, knowing that you were not redeemed by corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received from traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And you know what he does? He takes us back to the cross again to see this is the, the reality of our salvation. This is who we are in Christ. This is even the eternal hope that you have. And based on that hope and the reality of that hope, that is what reflects then your conduct of living. And so if your, work, if your whole world is what's happening right now in the present and you lose your perspective of the hope of eternity with Christ, then what happens? You will manipulate all circumstances to try to build this present kingdom, your little world right now. You're going to want to make it as happy and perfect as you can possibly make it and completely miss the eternal perspective. So how does this translate into everyday living? Well, if I'm not focused on things of eternal and I have no genuine hope and I've lost perspective of hope, I'm going to invest in all my things for now. Anything that doesn't make me happy or make me feel good, I'm going to get away from it. Whether it's a job or relationship or anything, why? Because I want my kingdom now to be perfect. And it's not. Instead, we, we lose perspective on how to persevere and how to forbear and how to forgive. And no, I'm, I'm done with that. So we, we throw off relationships. We throw off employment. We throw off responsibilities. Why does that happen in Christian life? This should never happen in Christianity. It happens because we've lost our hope. How did that happen? Usually because we set aside the Word of God and the investment of the Word and the focus of being discipled and discipling others, and we place our investments on temporal things and not eternal things. And the more we do that, we just lose our hope. And so this morning, if I can encourage you in this, your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your hope is in, in Him, the person of Christ, to pursue Him, pursue His character. And He will forge in you and form in you the very character that He has. Why? Because he's wanting to multiply his life and his kingdom on this planet through you. And you reflect him. It's how we glorify him. It's how we please the Lord is by reflecting the image of Christ in all things. It is literally the reflection of living hope. I invite you to bow your heads with me and contemplate this for a second. If this morning you don't know this hope I'm describing, here's what it is. It's the hope of knowing you're forgiven by the Lord. And it doesn't mean I hope so as in speculation. 
It's the hope that is secure and sure that the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, loves you. And he loves you so much that he pursues relationship with you through his own son, Jesus. The relationship was broken by sin, and God is the one who intervened on that behalf and paid your sin debt for you so that you can have eternal life and be forgiven. Where now your sin debt's wiped clean. And before the Lord, you're righteous. And then God begins to forge this work in you to make you the man and woman that reveals Christ in you, the reality of the hope that you have, which is Jesus himself. If this is the day in your life, say, man, and Dwayne, I, I don't have that. I'm not confident in that. I invite you right now just to have a conversation with the Lord and just call upon his name. Lord, it's who he is. The scripture says when you call upon his name, he hears you. And as you call upon the Lord, you can confess with your mouth that, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he gave his life for me, that he died and was buried and rose again. And today I ask for eternal life. I ask for your forgiveness, believing that Jesus is God. And you may not say those exact words, but if that's what's brewing in your heart, God hears your prayer. And the scripture says that when we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we are saved. And Christian today, as you contemplate those characteristics or the things that God's speaking into your life, maybe there's sin that we need to just put away from us and, and start afresh and anew right here today. There's, there's things that we need to start doing. There's investing in people and in being invested in and having someone maybe show you, be the Paul in your life. Maybe you need to be the Paul in someone's life to show them how to walk in the ways of Christ. What is God instructing us to do today? God speaks his word. The question is, will we hearken to his voice?